As our children are being dismissed, I hope you can take your Bibles with me and turn back to that 1 John passage we read a few minutes ago. 1 John 5, 13 through 21. Interestingly enough, by a couple years ago, there was a research company that surveyed Americans and Brits regarding the confidence in their ability to defeat various animals in an unarmed combat. And the survey was about 15 different animals in total. And each respondent was asked the question, which of the following animals, if any, do you think that you could be in a fight if unarmed? And the results were fascinating. On the lower end of the ferocity spectrum... 68% of American women and 76% of American men were confident in their ability to fight and beat a rat. (laughs) And the results were very similar when it came to defeating a house cat in battle, thankfully. Uh, Confidence decreased. Uh, when they talked about the ability to overcome medium or large dogs, eagles, or king cobras. And certainty really took a more drastic drop when they began to talk about fighting wolves, crocodiles, grizzly bears, elephants, lions, and gorillas. But the crazy thing was that it didn't drop as drastically as you might think. 9% of American women believed that they could take down a wolf without any guns or anything. 8% were confident that they could best crocodiles, grizzly bears, elephants, and a lion. 6% of American women thought they were certain that they could have an easy victory over a gorilla. Not to be outdone by American women, American men felt that a wolf possessed little threat at all. Crocodiles were no problem for 10% of American men. 9% thought they could handle grizzly bears and elephants. 7% were confident that they were, had superior fighting ability to lions and gorillas. What do we learn from this study? That there is about a 10% of our American population that is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. What we really learned is that when it comes to human confidence, we are a little flaky sometimes. I mean, sometimes, right, we should be a little bit more confident than we are. I mean, shouldn't more people than three out of four be confident they could defend their children from their house cat? I have two house cats, and I'm not too worried. They could both come at me, and I'd be fine. Sometimes, though, shouldn't we be a little less confident. I mean, taking on a grizzly bear. Do they know what a grizzly bear is? A lion, a gorilla, an unarmed battle. It's one thing, isn't it? It's one thing when it comes to cowardice and bravado in a hypothetical battle against wild animals. But it's quite another thing, isn't it? When it comes to the claims of Christianity. See, we live in a culture, we live in a day in which certainty is increasingly vilified. 
Douglas Sean O'Donnell captures it well, I think, when he says this, and I quote, It's a strange day in which we live when doubt is deemed a virtue, skepticism is hollowed as humility, and absolute truth is viewed as absolutely false. See, recent surveys said that 58% of Americans no longer believe in absolute truth. Only 52% believe that God is a source of certainty for their lives. More and more, the article said, we are finding that the means of truth and confidence doesn't come from God any longer. It comes from the inner self, from scientific proof, or from public consensus. Some would even go so far as to say that there is no such thing as truth or there is absolutely no way that we could find truth even if there is one. More difficult to grasp is that 50% of Christians in America identify, only 54, that God is truth. More specific, evangelical Christians of which we would find ourselves, Bible-believing Christians, only 69% of evangelical Christians believe that God is the basis of truth, which means this, that it is equally true that we have confidence in taking our cats in a battle as we do with believing God is truth. In contrast to that, the idea of confidence and certainty in God permeates John's entire epistle that we've been reading. In fact, he uses the word itself, confidence, five different times in verse 14 of our text. John strongly wants his first century readers and us, his 21st century readers, to be certain, absolutely certain, of their standing before God. And so in our text, you can see it for yourself He builds it up with a framework. Would you look at the framework with me? That's the verse 13 and verse 20 and 21. There are two frames always. Both of them talk about eternal life. You can see it for yourself in the text. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may be certain, that you may be confident, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he ends the same idea in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come And given us understanding so that we may know him is true and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. It frames our passage. John wants everyone to leave this series and leave this text and leave this place this morning with this certainty. That you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. In between those two brackets, as writers of scripture often do. He does a number of things to let you know what the benefits of eternal life are, knowing for certain. So we're going to look at them both today. We're going to look at the brackets on each end, and we're going to look at what is in between, the three benefits of knowing for certain that you have eternal life. So let's take them and unpack them one at a time. Number one, the brackets, verses 13 and 20 and 21. Being right about Jesus will give you confidence in the most important thing in your absolutely most important thing in your life. And that is having eternal life. So he begins, I write these things to you. Now he's said that little line, I write these things to you, four times. All of them in chapter 2. But he wants to come back at the end of the book with that purpose statement. And he wants to lay that groundwork again. Because he wants to remind all of us that this whole series, and as it concludes, is no different. He wants you to know this. The purpose is that he's writing people who know Jesus and he wants them to be confident in it. 
He wants us to know for sure. And so he has set out in his letter and clearly presented who Jesus Christ really is. And he has warned us that not everyone, listen, not everyone in church, not everyone who claims to know Jesus, not everyone who is religious, not everyone who comes to Faith Baptist Church believes the same thing about who he is and what he's done. That's why he warns against Antichrist and he warns against false teachers. Because those people who were in their church, chapter 2, verse 19, were once here. They once came here, but they left the church because they really weren't of them. You know why? They didn't believe the apostles' teaching about Jesus being the Son of God. And so he has to lay it out in detail. Look at the text. Verse 13. I write these things to you. What group of people? Well, the group of people who believe in the name of the Son of God who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, that's, in, that's absolutely crucial. You believe in the name. It's the Son of God is used seven times, and it means king. It means Messiah. And later it became even obvious that it meant that he was deity. Five times in our chapter, Son of God is used. Both of them, at the beginning and end, have Son of God. And it also says, if you be- have the Son of God, you believe in him. You believe in him. Now, we've really spent a lot of time in First John, if you've been following the whole series, that how do you know you have eternal life? How can you be certain? Well, your behavior, that you do certain things, that you love God and you love others and you don't do this and you don't do that. And those are all not the way you get it, but the way that it's evidenced. It's the proof that you actually have it. But you know what? Here's what he says at the end, and he's also said this throughout, is that not just your behavior that indicates whether you have eternal life, but it's your beliefs. Beliefs are absolutely primary. So if someone came up to you this morning and said, hey, do you believe in Jesus? You might think that's a strange question. In fact, you might think it's the same question as we ask at Christmas time. Do you believe in Santa? Do you believe in aliens? But can I tell you this? When the Bible asks the question, do you believe in Jesus? It's far more than that. Do you believe in Jesus existed? Oh, it's not just that. See, the true meaning of the question is, is do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe he is the son of God, equal with the father God, unlike the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and a number of cults? Do you believe who he really is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the king? Let me rephrase it again. Do you believe that he is God and king and savior and Lord and he is your King, Savior, and Lord. Do you know how paramount in importance this is? Listen to John talk, same writer in his gospel. He says this, If you believe in the Son of God, you are not condemned. But if you do not believe in the Son of God, you are condemned already. Here's why. Because you have not believed, our phrase, in the name of the Son of God. So acknowledging who Jesus is, and knowing with clarity and certainty that and believing it. See, eternal life is in the balance. Here's what, that's what John says. See, Martha, when asked by Jesus at the tomb of her brother, do you believe? She goes, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God. Jesus stood before the religious leaders before they crucified him, and they said, are you the Son of God? He said, I am. That very understanding, that certainty that he himself had of who he was, it got him crucified. 
Because even the most religious people did not believe in who Jesus really was. And so his gospel, just like his epistle, ends with the phrase, I've written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Can you look at the second one? Because you might be asking, okay, Pastor Walker, I have to believe who Jesus is, the King, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. How do I do that? Well, see, here's the thing. You can't. Not on your own. The second bracket indicates If you look at verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. See, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit working in you to convince you about who Jesus is, you will not believe in him. You can't come to that conclusion on your own. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God. It is an understanding. And so there are people who come here every week, and you know about Jesus, and you know all about him, and you think, yes, I believe he's God, but not in a way that's saving. You know why? Because God has to give that to you, he says. See, you have to believe that he is true, that this is the truth. That he is the only one who can save me from my sins. That's why, strangely enough, the second bracket ends with almost a phrase that seems out of place. Verse 21 says, children, keep yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves. And I don't think these are idols that he's referring to, even though he's in Ephesus. I don't think that these are idols of wood or stone or any of those things that you set up in a statue. I don't think, I think he's referring to an idol as anything that you worship other than the true God who has revealed himself in Jesus as the Son of God. Any substitute view of him. And a lot of people fall for them. Have you? Have you become idolatrous in the view of Jesus that says, you know, he's a great teacher. Oh, I get that, Pastor Walker. Wow, he said some things that would make your heads, right? Uh, he He is a great model to follow. What an example that he was. I can't believe that he was so loving and kind when people treated him so often. What a great person to emulate. No, that's not what he's about. He's not the God God of the genie in the bottle that, you know, I don't really need Jesus most of the time, but when I get an emergency or crisis, I rub the Baptist bottle, and the Bible bottle, and he comes out and gives me what I need. No, that's not who he is. See, there's a lot of substitute, alternative, false views of him. And he says, be on the guard, guard yourselves, because there were people who used to think about Jesus the right way, But because of their life circumstances and because of the choices they've made and the lifestyle that they want to have, see, they've changed and altered and, can I say, edited their view of Jesus. See, that's the framework. He wants you to be clear about eternal life and that you have it in the Son and who he is. Because without that, you won't see what you're missing. And he points out to us the benefits. There are three benefits, he says, of knowing with certainty and confidence that you have eternal life, that you know the Son of God. Let me unpack them for you. Can I do that? Number one, the first benefit is that we know that we can pray confidently. Look at your Bible and circle them if you do that. Because seven times in this text he uses the verb know, to know, K-N-O-W, right? And five of them is we know. Twice in verse 15, Once in verse 18 and 19 and 20. Over and over again. Here's what he says. We want you to be certain about what is certain. We know. We know. We know. See, 
Do you, and that's the question, please ask yourself over and over as I'm talking, do I have that certainty or in my heart, in my mind, is there a big question mark? Because John says you can know. And if you know you have eternal life, there are a lot of certainties that come with it. He says we can know that we pray, when we pray, we have confidence, and this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. It's the same word confident used in what a verse that more people probably know commonly. It says this, we can draw near confidently to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need, Hebrews 4. It's the same word, sometimes translated boldly, but it's the same word confidence. Do you not think that it is unbelievable that the creator, the God who is infinite, the God who made everything, the God in Jesus who came to die on the cross for your sin, he says this, that you can come to his throne and you can come confidently. Do you remember the story of Esther of the Old Testament? How she needed to go and ask something of the king to counteract all the works that Haman had done to wipe out the Jews. And she didn't know for sure that when she appeared before the king, because back in those days, even though she was the queen, you could ask entrance into the presence of the king. And if he didn't summon you or ask for you, you were risking literally your life. So when you walked in the door and asked of his throne room that you would like to talk with him, and if he did not point to you with his scepter, they would execute you. So she was the queen. And so she says this, I got to go and ask him to talk to him about this. And if I die, I die. See, even her and her position and her power, she wasn't certain that going before the king was going to make it be a good idea. That's not true for you and I. Not if you're a Christian. Not if you have eternal life. Not if you believe in the Son of God. He says, see, you can have this confidence that when you ask to go in the throne room, when you get on your knees and pray, and the word ask three different times. See, when you pray and you have God, you know Jesus, so you have access to the throne, you can come confidently. But beware, confidence is not presumption. We don't approach God as if somehow he owes us something. So let me make it clear. You cannot pray confidently for God to help you to get an A on an exam that you haven't studied for. Sorry if I just blew your bubble there. You can't ask for help when you didn't prepare for the test and say, God, I'm only going to cheat. Please help me not to get caught. You laugh, but I have had people tell me that they've prayed that. You cannot pray confidently, more seriously, for bitter revenge against someone who has done you wrong. In fact, that not only you would get the bitter revenge, but God would take it out on them and judge them. I have sat in booths and restaurants with wives who have divorced husbands and vice versa, and this is what they are praying that God would answer. You cannot pray confidently for God to give you a person to marry because you've been lonely and you're single and you want to be married all these years knowing that you intend to marry someone who is lost and you're a Christian. But yet you think God will answer that. You can't confidently pray for your kids to follow God, parents, and believe that he's going to answer it when you don't. See? Help me buy this car, God, knowing that you can't afford it. See, 
We can never, can I say it to you? We can never pray confidently unless we pray, look at the phrase, according to his will. That's the only way, to the only, that's the degree that we can be confident is that we pray in God's will. And God's will is God's word. Now, why is that important? Because when he talks about prayer in this passage and that we can be confident in it, can I tell you this? It's not really at all in this text or primarily about you and what you can get or what you need. As great as that is, what he says in the text in verses 16, 17, and 18 is that he wants you to know that you can confidently come in prayer to him and you're praying for people who are caught in their sin in your church. Verses 16, 17, and 18 have three little if clauses, if, 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 and they build on one another. See, if you pray according to God's will, he hears us. And if you ask those things, he's going to answer you. But what are those things? Praying for other people who are caught in sin. And he gets into the long discussion about there's a sin that doesn't lead to death and there's a sin that does lead to death. Without going through all the 25 commentators and their different views... Let me tell you simply what I think is in the context. I think the sin unto death is this, exactly what it says that we're talking about, that you've rejected that Jesus is the Son of God, that you don't believe who he is. And there have been people in this church in the Bible who left us, it says, and they weren't really of us because they really didn't believe in who he was. They didn't. Oh, they know he's this or that or the other, but to believe who he really is and what he's done and have that change their lives, they didn't believe that. They rejected it. They didn't realize how important it was, that their eternal life was at stake in what they believed about that. And that sin, like people are scared of the unpardonable sin. What is that, Pastor Walker? It's unbelief. It's the only sin that can't be forgiven in the entire Bible. Have you watched the news back months ago now, the Titan submergible? They were going down to see the Titanic. You know the story. But what you don't know, perhaps, is the backstory to it, is they got super big warnings from the officials and the government that their submarine wasn't capable. They were told by numerous people, people who used to work on staff when they built it, it's not going to last. They were told, but they thought that they were unsinkable. Sound familiar? It's the same message that was told to the Titanic what are you going to do about this? And what are you going to do? Oh, we're not worried about icebergs. We're not worried about, any, we're not worried about any of those things. You know why? We are unsinkable until it happens. The Titanic lost over 1,500 people. And the little Titan, can I say that? The little Titanic, see, it thought that it could handle what's called crush depth, that the entire submarine at a certain depth, would be completely crushed and exploded in everyone in it. They thought that that was never going to happen to them because they thought this, we are unbreakable. See, there are people who think that, oh, you know, I just believe a little bit about Jesus and I'm a little bit of religious like this. And they think that, you know, it's not that big a deal. Oh, yes, there's a crush depth for everyone. Unless you believe in the name of the Son of God. And we pray for those people, don't we? We pray for those in our church who are sinning and not living a lifestyle that gives evidence to it, he says, because we don't want them to be in that case. But the second benefit in verse 18 says, we know that we can fight sin confidently. 
See, that's the benefit of knowing that you have eternal life. Knowing that you have eternal life means that you can pray confidently and you can live confidently. You can live confidently knowing this, that you have defeated sin. Because look at verse 18. Everyone that has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It's not that we never see. You as a believer can't commit the sin that leads to death. And by the way, death in 1 John always is talking about spiritual death. And he says this, you know what you can be confident of? That you have not committed that sin unto death. But that doesn't mean Christians can't sin. See, we can still commit sins in our lives. And that's why the Bible says in Matthew 18, 17, that if you have people in your church that are living in sin, that are unrepentant, you should should treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors. Why? Because the essence of Christianity is repentance. And if you're living in sin and someone or the Bible or the Holy Spirit or a person in your church who loves you points it out and you refuse and reject it, see, you're making a statement by that. When someone points out to you who loves you that you're not living in obedience, that you're not living as God would want you to from the scriptures, and you refuse to change it, it's evidence that you don't have eternal life. A lifestyle of unrepentant immorality Unrepentant immorality makes a statement, doesn't it? A lifestyle of unrepentant hatred and bitterness and holding a grudge year after year, like the guy when I had my car fixed, and he was the guy who took people back and forth for their homes to the the dealership. He shuttled us, told me the story about someone at a church that offended him, and he wasn't going to go back. And I thought maybe it had been a month or two. He said, when was that? He goes, 31 years ago. See, unrepentant hatred and bitterness. A lifestyle of unrepentant lack of desire for God. Unrepentant lifestyle of loving the world and all that goes with it. See, here's what it says in the Bible. See, we can know this. Christians, true Christians who have eternal life, They are serious about sin. It's not casual. It's not flippant. It it matters to people who, you know why? Because we don't keep on sinning. That's not who we are. Oh, we're not perfect. Not in any way, shape, or form. You don't have to stick around here long enough to know that, right? We have sin, but it doesn't mark us. It doesn't characterize us. It's not what our pattern is, our lifestyle. And certainly when confronted with our own, we should be repenting. So he says, here's the benefits that we can pray confidently. We can deal with sin confidently. And listen to this, the third one. We know this, that we are protected from Satan confidently. Verse 18 reads this. But he who has been born of God, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And there's a debate if that second phrase, born of God, who it refers to. But I think in the text it refers to Jesus who was the firstborn from the dead. And the born of God protects him. Jesus protects his own from the evil one. In John 10, Jesus says this, those of the, you know, I haven't lost any that the Father has given me, and I and my Father are one, and they're in my hand, and no one can pluck them out. See, we have protection from the evil one. It's a benefit of having eternal life. And we live in a culture, and I think you'd all agree, that protection is utmost, isn't it? I mean, we protect everything. I don't remember the object, but not long ago, I bought something on the internet, and it was $29.99. And then it flips up this little thing. You can protect this for the next three years for $29.99. I go, that's what I pay for it. 
I'm not going to spend an equal amount to protect it to where I buy, I can get a new one, right? But protection is crucial. I mean, you have your car, you protect it, you put things on the outside so the paint doesn't come up, and you have protected against people who drive and wreck into you or vice versa, right? Home security, simply safe. Securities and cameras. Look around our building all the time. Faith Baptist Church, Faith Christian School. We have people in the parking lot to make sure everything is safe when you come in. We just put new doors, all different kinds of doors in our building. We're doing more doors. We put things on the windows so that people try to break through and do all kinds of other horrible things. And we're doing monitors and cameras and videos and the hallways and the thing, and outside and inside and on and on. Why? Why? Because here's what you do. When you value something, you protect it. And when there's possibility of danger, you protect it. Here's what God says. Your soul is the most important thing you possibly could have. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, he says, here's, I protect you from the evil one. And then it says this, so that he can't touch you. And it's a verb in the Greek that means to put your hands on someone so that you can harm them. See, Satan wants to attack you, but it's not just what you think. See, I know this morning we all have this, the temptations of sin and lust and the internet and TV and movies and, and all the other things that go, and there's a lot of behavioral attacks. But in the context, you know what he's, really, he's coming after you? Your belief attacks. He doesn't really want you to believe that Jesus is who he is and really live that out in your life, that he's the son of God, that he's the king of your life, controls your choices, your relationships, how you use your money, what's invaluable to you, important. See, you need a protection. My mother-in-law and father-in-law live with us. And they're getting up there. They're in their 80s. <clears throat> and they have around their neck life alert. You know what life alert is, right? You've seen it on TV. You know, you, you can push the button if you fall down and they'll notify someone. You can be anywhere, anytime, and you can be protected. You know what John says? You need eternal protection. And if you know Jesus, you can have it. Why? Because look what he says in verse 18. Because, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil. The whole world. There's not a place that you can go that you are simply safe. Not in this world. Oh, you need protection. Your kids need protection when they go to school. They do. See, they need, when they go to college and sit under people who don't believe who Jesus really is, the Son of God, see, they need protection. They need protection in our neighborhoods. They need protection. And I don't mean talk physically. I'm talking spiritually. Our families, our lives. Do you take that seriously? Jesus did. He died for your protection. He did. So you can't be safe anywhere because the whole world itself lies under his power. But you can at the same time be safe everywhere if you know Jesus. If you have him, it's the greatest life alert that there ever possibly could be. You see, all of those benefits, praying confidently, see, living confidently, being protected confidently, all of those come and flow from the certainty, the confidence that you have eternal life. Do you have it? Are you absolutely certain? Where is your confidence are you more confident that you could take your cat at home? Do you really believe that you could take a lion? Can I tell you this? You can't take the lion 
who roars and seeks to devour you, 1 Peter 5a. You can't take Satan, but the Lion of Judah can. Oh, he can, if you know him. Are you certain? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. You see, there could be someone here this morning and perhaps you're a visitor. Maybe it's been a long time and you've been in this church and sit in these pews and hear these messages. Maybe you've been here for the vast part of our Life Assurance series. But you'd have to be honest. Not sure, Pastor Walker. Not certain. I look at my behaviors. I don't show much interest in God nor victory over sin. I don't think I can remember the last time I had a prayer answered. And my beliefs, oh, you know what? I may be orthodox in some ways because I know what the Bible teaches, but I have to be honest, it doesn't really change my life at all. He may be the Son of God. He may be the Messiah, the Master, the Savior, but he's really not mine. You might be here to say, and what you would say about your life eternal would be question mark. At best... I'm not sure. Can I say, when I was a little kid, I lived that way, even though I was only 12 to 15 years old. It's a horrible way to live, and by the way, you don't have to. The confidence comes not in your belief, not in your behavior, but in the one that you're believing, and the one that you're behaving for, it's Jesus. He's the only spiritually safe program you can be in. Do you know him? Have you really believed in him? Do you trust him? Are you certain? You can be. By his grace, you can be today. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, that it's true. And I thank you that you are the source of truth. And we are 100% sure of that. I'm so thankful for Jesus, the Son of God, who came, died, and rose again and gave us, as John says, the understanding about what all of that means so that we could have, by your grace alone, eternal life. But there are some that I pray for this morning who are here who don't share that certainty, don't have that confidence. And maybe it's their belief system. Maybe it's that they don't behave and live out that belief system but it has left a heart-wrenching question mark that causes fear and anxiety, not knowing that if today would be their last day, where they would really spend eternity. And we hold on to things knowing that's where we are, that eternal life hangs in the balance, but yet we hold on to lifestyles and beliefs that we know are false, and they have become idolatry. Oh, God, by your power, your resurrection power, would you deliver today? For your glory, would you give freedom through truth that would transform lives from the inside out forever? Would you be kind, O oh Lord, and merciful in that way today? And we'll thank you for that rich blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.